Welcome back to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and today's episode is all about audiology equipment. Now hear me out. I know this might not sound like the most fascinating topic in the world, but I'm telling you, it is so, so important and interesting to learn about the equipment that we use and how we use it to get information about hearing, about how our ears work and which part of our ear has different things going on with it. And you know, when you're a parent and you're bringing your kid to the audiologist, they're not just shaking a rattle and seeing if the kid responds. You know, that might be like the first step to just see if there's any kind of gross awareness, but we actually have very precise and very complicated and technical ways that we're checking different parts of the auditory pathway in order to get information about your kid's hearing or about your own hearing for that matter. So here's the conversation that I had with Julie Renshaw, an experienced audiologist who shared with us not only the important role of the equipment, but absolutely the necessary understanding that audiologists need to have in order to understand what that equipment can do and what do the results mean and being able to interpret all of that. So I think this interview, like most of the episodes here, are for both groups of audiences that are listening. Uh, many of you are students, students of audiology, of speech pathology, of communication disorders, and I think there's a lot in this episode that you'll find really relevant to your studies and to the practice of our profession. And it's also specifically geared for families who are dealing with this, who have been on the side of the appointments where you're watching your kid get stickers all over their forehead. So we talk about that in the interview, and I really think that it's going to bring you some comfort and some value to know that it's not a Ouija board, but it's an ABR. And we explain what all that equipment means. So I hope you'll love this episode as much as I enjoyed speaking with Julie. Thank you so much for being a listener to the All About Audiology podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saverstein, and today we are talking all about instrumentation. It might sound a little bit boring. Why do I care about the equipment used at my audiology appointment? But wait, you're in for a surprise. It's actually very interesting, at least I think so. And I also have someone very, very special with us today who's very experienced, has a lot of knowledge to share with us about instrumentation, Julie Renshaw, who is going to tell us all about why this is so important for our practice. And I hope that we have listening today parents and audiology students and people with hearing loss. So that runs the gamut of the audience. And I think everyone can benefit from the conversation we're going to be having. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and your current position? So I'm a clinical audiologist for 37 years, and I worked at Riley Children's Hospital for about 20 years of that. So I was involved in all different aspects of audiology as part of my role there. And then for the last 15 years, I left clinical practice and have been representing all things related to equipment for hearing and balance assessment. I do not represent cochlear implants or hearing aids specifically, but I do everything else related to those assessments. Okay. So tell us a little bit about why instrumentation is so important to the practice of medicine in general and for audiology specifically. I think instrumentation is so important because it's such a critical element of the diagnostic process. 
So in thinking of my hearing impaired children, I mean that without proper instrumentation, identifying their hearing loss, quantifying it, and helping the families make that next step is really impossible. I think everything in medicine today depends on equipment giving us the proper diagnosis. We're such a technology-driven society that although it is so important to listen to families, and I always believe that some of the best information you can get is by saying, how do you think your child hears? I think that the next step is often relying on high-end diagnostic equipment to get the most accurate starting point, whether it's for a cardiac problem, a hearing problem, a vision issue, all of those things technology and good equipment. For sure. And I think one of the simplest thing to understand is even using headphones already is such an amazing tool because you're getting information from right ear versus left ear, which you're not getting if you have a kid in front of you, as you don't know, are you getting both ears? You're getting one ear. So even that's like a simple thing that you think, oh, that's obvious. So we should use those, but you need to have well calibrated and equal right and left insert earphones or headphones. So that's one of those things. And also I remember we had a professor when I was an undergrad, he used to say if somebody called uh, the tympanometer or the audiometer, the machine, he would say, it's not a machine. It's an instrument. (laughs) (laughs) Instrument is um, something that you use to measure things. And like you said, to quantify. So he gave me a lot of respect for all of the things that need to go into the audiology environment in order to make everything else happen. So the first equipment that a lot of people interact with is just by the screening, newborn hearing screening, and somebody comes in or it's in the nursery and someone is putting these stickers on their baby's head with all these wires. So they might be overwhelmed about what's going on. What is this whole contraption? So let's talk a little bit about ABRs and about what electrodes are used for? How does that give us any information about hearing? Let's jump in for ABRs, which are auditory brainstem response, and in other parts of the world, also called BERA, BERA, mm-hmm. or evoked response audiometry. It's all the same thing. I think you bring up a really great observation initially, which is hearing screening in the nursery is so critically important, yet it can sometimes set the wrong tone for parents in the identification process because the screeners are often very well-intentioned private screeners or nurses or volunteers. Their role is not to bring the parents into that testing in a way that often facilitates confidence, understanding, Um, about what's happening. And I'm a huge believer that the parents being a part of that process is so critical. I don't think that we can undo the way hearing screening is done. And I think it needs to be done and it's it's so important. But I think that when there is a need for a follow-up test, that it is imperative that we totally change that dynamic of their understanding of what's happening. In a nutshell, you asked me to kind of review what is happening with the placement of electrodes. I think that families are, in general, again, technology is everywhere in our lives, but we're, we're very comfortable with how maybe an EKG works for the heart. And our body is just full of potential energy that's happening all the time, positive and negative electrical energy that's going on. On the surface of our skin, we can measure that. And we do it with measuring the heart function. We do it with a lot of electrodes placed on the scalp for an EEG. 
And so I think that people are more familiar with the fact that electrical impulses are just part of our makeup. What we do with an ABR, we absolutely do a far field recording and a surface recording because basically we can't get down to that hearing nerve. It would just be ideal if we could put a, an electrode right on that hearing nerve of that baby and we'd know exactly what they hear. But that's not going to ever be feasible. Maybe it will, you know, 20 years from now. But right now we're we're forced with measuring far field away from that nerve by putting critically placed electrodes on the scalp. And then what we do is we know there's all this electrical energy going on and we have to average that out. It's signal averaging, get rid of all the just, we're gonna call that noise. That's just your body activity, your body electrical potentials. And we're gonna look at what happens in a very narrow window of time, actually 20 milliseconds which basically is saying I'm putting a sound in this baby's ear. And we're gonna see what happens as it goes down the eighth nerve in the brainstem. And we're gonna measure if that nerve is saying what I like to tell my families, I got it, I heard it. And it's gonna give a peaked response. It's gonna show a pattern. And that means that that baby heard that sound. So the way we accomplish this is there are a lot of sounds going into the ear that we are averaging. So the baby's gonna hear something like and after every one of those clicks, we're gonna look at 20 milliseconds of activity. We have a signal processor, you know, everyone's familiar with averagers and processing. Now we have a processor on every desk, our computer. We're gonna use a processor like that to take that information and we're gonna synthesize it all together and filter it and amplify it and get rid of all just our regular body sort of potentials and see if that hearing nerve is responding. So when they come in to test your little baby in the nursery, we're putting on these surface electrodes and we're averaging and we're putting sound in there and we're making sure that that signal is getting through to the brainstem. Excellent. That's a very good explanation. And again, like if you just start from the beginning, which is what you did, it said there are these potentials, these energy changes that are constantly happening all over our body. We're just finding a way to measure it and access it. So that's why this instrumentation is really important. <laughs> it gives us like a window into something we couldn't get otherwise. And not only that, but we can also use ABR for other things, not only for babies. What else do we use ABRs for? So when you have auditory brainstem evoked response equipment or brainstem evoked response audiometry, you can use it to assess hearing, which we just discussed by changing the intensity and changing the stimuli that are presented. You can also use it as an assessment of neural integrity. So let's say there's a concern that someone might have a problem on their auditory nerve or their vestibular nerve that's causing balance. We can look at the timing characteristics of the nerve to determine whether or not there could be a problem there that would prompt them to have a scan to make sure there's nothing going on in their brainstem area that could impact their longevity of their life. So one of the things we can do is we can use it from a hearing perspective and we can use it from a neural perspective. Also, if you have a system that can average responses, which we know that's the heart of this kind of equipment, it's an averager. You can also use it to make balance um, assessments by doing what's called a, looking at a potential in the cochlea called the summiting potential and electrocochleography. You can use it to look at a myogenic potential called the cervical 
vestibular evoked myogenic potential or the ocular evoked myogenic potential, CVEMS and OVEMS, which all look at different parts of the balance pathway versus the auditory pathway and how, how all of those can come together to give diagnostic information. Yeah. So in our, the clinic where I work at now, we have this room and you walk into the room, there's like four different computers and wires everywhere and lots of stickers and gauze and some of this stuff that you have to smush on your skin. And it's just, I think, so important for patients to come in and be able to say, what is happening? Why are we doing this? What is the point of this test? What are some of the things that you would recommend for audiologists to say to their patients or that you would want patients to know when some of these kind of testing are going on, when someone's preparing for this kind of testing, both sides of that, the audiologist side and the patient side? Well, I think that the patient side is so much more educated than it was when I started practicing audiology so many years ago, because all it takes is a Google search of the test that you're going to have, and you can see YouTube videos about it. You can read about it. You can get exposure to it. I think, though, what we can't... Podcast about it. <laughs> podcast about it. So I think that it's still critically important that the one-on-one though when you have that opportunity to meet with the patient that you don't assume too much that they've read or too much that they've you know listened to because I think it's you want to clarify and make sure they're comfortable with what's going to happen to them in this experience so I know that my passion for many years was making the pediatric AVR experience something that was really really meaningful to parents. And I never wanted it to be, to use a quote from the Wizard of Oz, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Because I think far too often, parents will go in. I had parents say to me from other facilities, they come in, not, not that I that I'm anyway casting dispersions on what happened, but they would say, we went in this dark room and we came out and they said, my baby couldn't hear. I never, ever wanted that to be the case with my kiddos. So what I would do is Again, depending if the the baby's asleep, sometimes you have to work quickly in the beginning, but I would always have a printout of what they would see on the screen for normal. I'd let them listen to the click or the tone burst at all the different levels. So they had a sense going in, this is what's happening. These are the levels. This is what we're watching for on the screen. They'd hold it in their hand. They'd listen to all the levels and they'd be watching with me. And sometimes they'd talk, and I'd talk to them during it. Sometimes at the end, what I'd like best of all is when I turn around and they'd say, they couldn't hear it below 65, could he? I think you're right. That's where we were on the screen. They're making the diagnosis. They're part of the test. They're part of the assessment. It's not my back's to you and you at the end, I'm going to turn around and show you a piece of paper and this is it. And then at the end, again, we'd listen to the exact level they could hear. And then they would hear the level that they could hear. Oh, I can hear it at 20. They can't hear he can't hear it there. Like, no, this is where we stop. And we, and then you have commitment and you have knowledge and you have buy-in by the parents. And like I said, nothing made me more satisfied as hard as it was, but to turn around and have them tell me the result before I could show it to them. That is amazing. And that's, that's what I like to do because I want them to be a part because as you know, because I can tell you're passionate about pediatrics. If if they walk out of that room not feeling like they understood what happened and what that means, 
it is going to delay so much the intervention, which is so critical for these little ones until, you know, you can't wait till they're two. They wait till they're two. They're never catching up. There's been a bunch of research about that. It's not that you can't have good intervention. It's just the two-year-olds are going to wait for the four-year-olds. I mean, they're just, no one's going to stop advancing. So if you get two years behind, you will never close that gap. You will never close it. Yeah. It just keeps getting wider as they grow. Yeah, or you can maintain it if you catch up, but they're never going to wait for you. You're you, like if you have a little one, your four-year-old say, "Okay, don't learn anything now for the next two years till your brother catches up." <laughs> it just doesn't happen. I mean, this this is such a great pediatric tip in general, like a big protocol. You know, because I've heard of that about this idea for having parents come into the test booth and doing sound field testing so they can be present, hearing the sounds that perhaps their child is not responding to at various levels, and then they can understand it like they have heard and seen what's missing there. But from the earliest ABR to do that with them, that's something that I'm, I'm going to consider now <laughs> and include because, yeah, it is very much, you know, you stay quiet for a half hour or 45 minutes, just keep that baby sleeping. And then, you know, because we're, we're in a rush too. So you're kind of always balancing those two things in the appointment. That's a great idea. Sometimes babies are screened with the ABR screening that we've been talking about, and other times they use the OAE screener, the otoacoustic emissions. So how is that equipment different? What does that tell us about hearing? And why are there some places that use one or the other? So when the joint committee, when they first were deciding to implement universal hearing screening, they approved both otoacoustic emissions and the ABR. And then as we learned more and more about how the screening process worked for babies identified with hearing loss and babies we were missing that had problems with their hearing, that philosophy has evolved a little bit over time to a little bit different best practice standards. So to step back, let's talk about the differences between the two. As we talked about with ABR, we're measuring from the sound entering their ear canal through the middle ear, through the inner ear, the the snail-shaped cochlea to the hearing nerve. And then we stop at the brainstem level. We we don't get all the way up to how they're using that sound, but we get a lot of the pathway of auditory audition looked at. Now, when we do OE, it's a faster test. It's quick. There's there's no electrodes put on the scalp. What happens is the sound does have to go in an ear. You have to have a sound going into the ear but it only looks at a response to the level of the cochlea. It does not involve any neural processing of the sound by the auditory nerve. So basically the sound goes into the cochlea, generates a response back that was picked up with a little microphone sitting in the ear canal that's measuring this response. So how are they different? Well, once they both look at the auditory pathway, one goes, let's just say, for argument's sake, halfway up, and the other one goes three quarters of the way up. Nothing goes 100% of the way up, which would be the brain. No one's saying how the brain is using that sound. We just got to make sure that our, our goal at this point is to make sure the sound's getting there. We only can check that it's getting halfway with the OAE, three quarters of the way with the ABR. And so why did we approve the OAE? Well, we found that most hearing loss happens in that first half. We used to believe almost all hearing loss happened in the first half of the pathway. And so we were going to catch all the babies, right? We're going to miss any babies. 
But then we found, like anything, as you do more and you get smarter and you look at all these babies that are being screened now, universal hearing screening, we're testing a lot of babies. And then we'd see babies that were two or three and we're like, they passed their newborn screening, but they're not hearing like they should. They're not functioning like they should. Their speech and language isn't developing like it should. What happened? Why did why did we miss these babies? Did they have a delayed onset of hearing loss that they came on after they left the nursery? Well, we found a large percentage of them that was not the case, that there may have been a problem in this last quarter that we're measuring, first half to that, that nerve part. So we thought, well, who... Who needs to have that test, which goes all the way to the nerve, the ABR part? And we decided our vulnerable babies really do. Our babies in the special care nursery. These babies neurologically can sometimes be compromised. They're not maturationally where they need to be. We need to follow these babies in all aspects of their life. Little preemies are followed not just for auditory, but their vision, everything. And we decided, okay, let's kind of step back on our joint committee and say, boy, if they're in the special care nursery, let's just not check them halfway. Let's check them as far as we can as a screening method, which would be the ABR. So I think the trend is, and I think eventually, and this is just my two cents, not any recommendation by the joint committee at all, is that eventually I think we'll do ABR on all babies. That's kind of my goal, that all babies would have an ABR. But at this point, well babies, will have the OAE in some hospitals and special care babies will have ABR and some hospitals screen all with ABR and some little hospitals that don't have any special care nurseries, first, second or third tier, whatever that many tiers there are now. I'm probably out of touch on that. There's probably six tiers of NICUs now. <laughs> those, those babies, those hospitals may only have OAE and check just to the level of the cochlea. So I hope that answered your question. Yeah. Earlier this year, I started working at a hospital here in Israel. And we have the six-month follow-up for babies who are in the NICU for any reason, or premature or anything, you know, any of those special considerations. And they all have this six-month follow-up appointment where we're then able to do some sound field testing, OAEs, tympanometry, and just some gross evaluation of their hearing as well with little toys, which is so delightful because the parents also can see we're shaking a rattle and they turn their head and it's, it's very cute. Even though I always tell them that's just for, you know, gross, <laughs> a, a big general test. Like, are they attentive to the sounds? But everything else fits in a little bit more information. But the cutest thing that happens is because these appointments are made six months ahead of time when they're coming out of the NICU, it always becomes this little reunion for all the families that were there together. And it's just so moving and so heartwarming to go into the waiting room and call the next one. And everybody's just schmoozing <laughs> and catching up on how their, their babies have been. That's not an easy experience. And I think when parents go through that kind of as a group or twos and threes, it's really beautiful. So that's my Wednesdays. <laughs> so we touched on a lot of the different instruments and why they're so important for audiological diagnostics and evaluation of hearing. So what else would you like to share with our audience? Um, anything about how to deal with a diagnosis or um, many, many students as well who listen to the podcast. So you can address them as well. 
Okay, I think one thing from an instrumentation standpoint I'd like to add is that technology has improved. The ABR, when I started doing it 37 years ago, we mostly used a click stimulus. And now I think what we've seen that's improved with the diagnostic techniques is we have improved stimuli. Now we have for ABR the CHIRP stimulus the LS chirp and we have the narrowband um, chirp for in lieu of tone burst. So we, we're constantly refining the information we can get, which improves the ability to fit hearing aids more accurately. We also have second generation of auditory um, ASSR testing, auditory steady state response testing. And again, this is allowing the testing to be done more quickly, which is much less stressful on the families. And you can do both ears at the same time. We actually have newborn screeners now that actually do simultaneous testing of ABR, as opposed to sequential, which is the right ear and then the left. Even though you hooked up both ears, it was doing them sequentially. And now we can do it simultaneously. So I I think technology is improving on our ability to get an accurate, a more accurate picture of hearing. I think some other interesting things have developed in the balance realm. I think that the advent of doing vestibular evoked myogenic potentials has been huge. It didn't used to be something that would fall under the auspices of audiology that much. It's been a new development and I think what's really interesting about it that people don't always, maybe for the students out there listening, appreciate is that this is all about pressure stimulating the vestibular system. It's not based on anything auditorily, which is interesting because you're putting a loud sound in their ear. Your immediate reaction is, oh, well, it's the sound that they're responding to when in fact it's the pressure disturbance in the vestibular system. So you can do someone who's deaf can have a vestibular evoked myogenic potential. So I think that's an interesting aspect to keep in mind when people are, when students are learning about vestibular evoked myogenic potentials. So I think that that's been a really exciting area for me because it wasn't something I had done clinically before. So I've appreciated adding that to my repertoire. And I think all the time we're learning so much more about the balance system. I think we, we're always advancing on what we know about the auditory system and how it works. But I think from a diagnostic perspective for students coming out of schools now, they can't learn enough about balance. I think that the, the techniques, the diagnostics, the equipment, whether it's computerized dynamic posturography, whether it's V-HIT, whether it's vent testing, this is just an area that is going to continue to grow because... As we know, fall prevention is a huge initiative in our country, and we have an aging population that is going to continue to have more and more vestibular issues. So if I was a student now, I would focus on balance-related instrumentation, learning more about that. I think our, our training programs do a great job with audiograms, sound field audiometry, ABR, because that's so important. OAE is absolutely tympanometry, but the balance program just, I think, is going to continue to grow. And I think if you're an audiologist, it can do all of those things comfortably, and audiologists within their scope of practice can do the diagnosis for that. They don't, in the United States, I shouldn't speak for other countries, um, so you don't have to have the involvement of ENT to make the diagnosis of neurology. You can actually do this testing and do the diagnosis, and I think that's 
It's critical to us as a profession, and I think that it's critical to the population. We can get more direct referrals for people that are having balance problems, that are having a fall risk. So I think that element needs to really be enhanced in um, in what people seek out and want to learn about, because I think it's fascinating, and I think it there will always be a place for someone who can assess someone's balance. Exactly. I was just having a conversation on Instagram today with a student who sent me a DM and said, hey, what do you think about PSAPs and hearing aids that you can get in for $50 off the internet? Those, you know, and all like the role of audiology is still a great field to go into. And I said, wait, 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 wait. Do you know what audiologists can do? So many things. And, you know, showing her like all the different fields within audiology. So I do love talking to students. I think everything you said is exactly right to get as many skills as you can within all the different fields within audiology because it's it's really so varied. And the other thing about what you said about the pressure and how like something that that really excites me about instrumentation is that it really forces you to go back to the fundamentals. You have to understand that sound is sound pressure and physically moving things within the environment through sound waves and you know going back to like the different parts of the pathway you have to be really immersed in that when you're using the instrumentation and it can't just be a technician level quote-unquote like just pressing buttons you have to actually have to know what do those buttons do how does this system work what's the circuitry so there's a lot of that that's like always fascinating to me and why it's something I I just want to share with the world. (laughs) Well, we appreciate you doing that. Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. If anyone would like to contact you with any further questions, is there a way for the best way for them to do that? Yes, they can. They can certainly email me at the email address that you have, which is J-R-E-N at gordonstow.com, G-O-R-D-O-N-S-T-O-W-E.com. And you're on LinkedIn as well. They can find you there. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to the All About Audiology podcast. I can't wait to hear what you thought of this episode, what other questions you might have about the various equipment we use in audiology. And I actually received a DM from one of you on Instagram who asked me to talk about REM, which is Real Ear Measurement. That's another kind of equipment and software that we use when testing hearing aids and when making sure that the hearing aids are programmed adequately. And that's a really interesting technology that lets us know that what the hearing aid is putting out, the sound coming out of the hearing aid, is exactly right for each person's precise ear shape, the length of their ear canal, right? The way the hearing aid fits in their ear. So it's a very specific and personalized kind of fitting. We didn't discuss that too much in this episode. It was more about diagnostic equipment, but I will send you over to listen with Lindsay on Instagram, Dr. Lindsay, who um, does a lot of simulations of what hearing loss, what various kinds of hearing loss might sound like using the REM equipment, the real ear measurement or the Verifit. So definitely check check that out if you're interested in more. And 100% send me your questions, send me your DMs on Instagram at All About Audiology Podcast. It's so, so fun for me to interact with you guys and learn about your journey, your learning, your study, your process, because that's what this is all about. It's about feeling like you have support, you're not alone, and there's other people in our community, you know, who you can connect with and who can understand 
what you're going through, whether you're a student, a parent, you yourself are struggling with hearing loss. So just know that I'm here for you. And the All About Audiology podcast is my gift, my labor of love for you out there. Stay tuned for future episodes. I'm Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and this is the All About Audiology podcast.